This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app, Politics Without the Boring Pits, live on your wireless, three hours a day. It's lovely. Right, coming up on today's episode, as, well, the migrant crisis is really taking hold. Not the one crossing the channel, important though that is, but the one that's playing out outside North Africa and then heading into Italy. Uh, the situation is really serious there. In fact, Emmanuel Macron's just sent one of his ministers to Italy to try and intervene. So we're going to take a bigger picture look at migration around the world. How is it playing out in North Africa, in Italy, France, Germany too, but also going to America and Australia to see how they're dealing with what's likely to be an increasing number of people moving around the world. So that's our big thing in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at what's going on in the world with today's Columnist Panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. And join us everyone on Tuesday by Danny Finkstein. Hello, Danny. Hello. Nice to see you. And in the studio for the first time... Second. Second, Second time. Jane Merrick, policy editor of the Eye. How are you? Morning, very well, thanks. We're going to talk about your saving of trees Great. shortly. But first, Danny, you've been trying to save the centre-right. <laughs> uh, you've written, uh, you've contributed to a book called The Case of the Centre-Right, edited by David Gork. Um, what is the case for the centre-right? Well, I, I really enjoyed doing this essay. David asked it to me and I originally agreed rather reluctantly, but because I have respect for him, I, for his courage and his intelligence, and I like him, I said yes, and then spent a lot of time trying to work out what I wanted to say. So the essay is an attempt to suggest what the difference is between the centre-right and the centre-left. Um, to do that, I had to try and define the centre. Well, we've only got half an hour, so I'm not going to go into the whole um, <laughs> argument. But, but, it's, but it, it, in essence, it, it argues that every political issue has got um, a case in favour of it and a case against it. Real arguments in favour of it and against it. In the centre, you come to terms with the fact that that's the case and you try to then deal with the um, resulting issue by using a sense of proportion. But a sense of proportion is subjective and that means there will be a difference between the centre-right and the centre-left. The other thing, however, that 
dropped out of it for me is that all of our political rows are between, you know, the centre-right and the centre-left on tax or on benefits. They're really important, big, big issues. But when I was writing my book on my family and, their, and, the, and the dictators, which you and I have talked about before, it made it less easy for me to as in, be as invested as I was before in the arguments I'm having with Yvette Cooper. I realised that um, actually... Um, there are an awful lot of arguments now that that, that separate the centre taken together with, with people that are not in the centre. In other words, who see politics not as pluralistic, who think there are basically right and wrong answers to everything rather than trying to deal with things by a sense of proportion, and who think there's a spirit of the nation which they embody as a political movement or as an individual and so I, I, I found it really interesting people will see whether they think I've been successful obviously you can see by the cast of characters in it Gavin Barwell Theresa May's former assistant Amber Rudd Rory Stewart um, that uh, Michael Heseltine quite a lot of those Andrew Cooper quite a lot of those people aren't in the Conservative Party and it demonstrates how far away those arguments are from being um, you know, successful in the in the Conservative Party. On the other hand, I think Dan Hannan argued correctly the other day in the Telegraph. Actually, Rishi Sunak uh, belongs at one edge of the centre right. Definitely, um, his politics are in certain respects more right wing than mine, but uh, we definitely speak the same language. Um, so I would argue to those people uh, who who wrote in this book but are not in the Conservative Party that that's still a tenable position. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Jada, it's a really interesting point that, that that Danny makes that the centre has become a sort of thing on its own in battle with the the extremes on the two. You know, we saw with Jeremy Corbyn on the left, mm. and then certain elements in the, in the Tory party right now. Um, and so that's it's been defined by those things instead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had sort of years of Blair in the centre and then Cameron in the centre and then obviously Brexit happened and populism. I mean, it's interesting that the next election will have two quite centrist leaders yeah. in Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. And how much is Rishi Sunak going to be urged by the right of his party to actually be sort of more right-wing, off the centre? Is that actually going to... He's not going to win any more votes, but he's going to take a maybe a def more defensive position and be kind of more right-wing on crime, on immigration. And it's interesting, actually, what I read the Dan Hannan um, review of the book. He's actually welcoming David Gork and saying he needs to be back in the Conservative mm -hmm. Party. We need to have people that, like this back in the Conservative Party. And... Where is the where you know where is the Conservative Party going to go after twenty twenty four? If Rishi Sunak leaves, are they going to have a kind of a, a reassessment of where the party wants to be for the next ten years? Are they going to be out of power for four years or twenty years? Yeah. You know, what's where is the future of the party? And it's really interesting that I think this book is kind of setting down a marker and saying that we can't just have a sort of a debate about remain or leave anymore. It has to be about the future of the party and the future of the centre. It's interesting though that the, the, if you your point about how they're both pretty centrist, actually it means that they end up overemphasizing the point that Danny was making, you know, exaggerating differences that, you know, stop the boats versus crash the gangs or, you know, they're essentially all in the same place. There's not... Uh, but they, they, they have to exaggerate then the minor differences. Yeah, and I think that's been Keir Starmer's problem in focus groups. You know, people have, have said they don't really know what he stands for, they don't really know what it's for. And I think we may come on to talk about this, but the kind of what Labour is doing, what Starmer is doing, is maybe a more muscular approach to policy that they need to do to get that definition against Sunak at yeah, the next I mean, election. His position, it does seem to be, um, this country is completely broken, let's do nothing about it. 
Um, <laughs> and and I and I and I can see why um, you can question that, right? You say you should have more vision, and should, but I think as an electoral strategy, this kind of reassurance is probably correct. And you know that's why all the conversations we have about the problems that Keir Starmer is having, he's fifteen points ahead in the polls, so he isn't having a big political problem. What you know, some people may argue that he'll have a problem dealing with these issues when he gets into power. But my view is he's better off having um, serious practical solutions to um, to actual issues rather than big, vague visions, mm. um, which actually don't in fact mean anything when, correspond, when they correspond to the real world. The question is whether those solutions are credible. So, for example, I felt the feel the position he's taken in which he's suggesting that without joining the single market or rejoining the EU, he's going to reopen our negotiating with negotiations with the European Union and do better in meeting his unmeetable terms from before the May's Brexit deal. I find that completely incredible. So he has to come up with credible answers. It's interesting, um, Jane, that the, he, he doesn't have a problem because he's 15, 20 polls ahead mm. of the polls, but he does seem to be creating his own problems. So yet last week, the very hard-line stance on on the migrant boats and everyone sort of picked holes in that and said, well, actually, you're going to end up with more people coming in. Then he said he wants to reopen the Brexit deal. He's also been talking about votes at 16. He's sort of throwing, he's sort of painting more and more targets on his own back. But I would actually disagree with that. I think the, the opposite is true. I think that actually 15, 20 points isn't that big if you think about there isn't he hasn't really sealed the deal with the electorate he hasn't really got anything hasn't had much to strongly to say to to voters so he has to be this he has to be saying more things i mean at least he's saying something about brexit now and actually he's there's spent a row. Four year, three years not talking about brexit it's ridiculous it's a criticism was i don't know what he stands for at least there's a row about something he said people yes. get a sense that he stands for something and don't forget he's not just got to win back red wall voters who don't want brexit undone and he's not going to undo brexit but he wants to improve the trade deal he's got to win back in scotland you know that's a very remaining part he's got to reassure his sort of core, I guess, metropolitan voters that he's not going to do anything mad and sort of, you know, be too, you know, be like the Tories. So he's got to appeal to this broader base. And I don't think that 15 to 20 point lead is that safe. So he's just got to be a bit more noticeable. And I think that carrying the Ming vase strategy wasn't working. Maybe this is a thing under Sue Gray. Maybe she's sort of introducing this more... No, so I think it was working. And, I, you know, that, that, that that's, you know, so I and, I and I think it was the correct strategy for him. But I, you know... But I think from the electorate's point of view, it's better to gain a a slightly clearer view. So from a democratic point of view, I'm glad if he decides to move there. I wouldn't advise him to do it if I was... I think the strategy he was embarked upon was palpably working politically for him. But I I think it's, you know, but it's good if we learn something more about him. I I do think this issue of the European Union is a dilemma for him. If you you are the Conservatives and you can see that... um, you know, you, you want to move away from the European social model anyway. Uh, it's not credible to go into the single market. This is, the issue may be difficult because of its consequences, but it's settled. For Labour, he could end up in a situation where he's moving towards the European social model. Everybody's arguing with him. The only solution is therefore to be part of the single market. And even he thinks that's the correct solution and when you're the prime minister you think it's the correct solution you think you can make it work with your base um what do you do then if you are you really going to hold out from it so i think it i think ultimately this is going to be it'll be a difficult issue particularly not you know if boris johnson won on get brexit done Mm. uh can you win on a slogan of let's reopen brexit a little bit 
And the risk is, actually, I mean, obviously Rishi Sunak has, had, has taken a more pragmatic approach yeah. to, to Brussels, so there is not much difference. There is a slight nuanced difference. But you're right, and the risk is for Keir Starmer is that it will allow newspapers who are opposed to him, the Conservative Party and others, to basically say Brexit is not safe under Keir Starmer. Yeah. And that is such a more, that's a more striking, memorable phrase than... Mm, we need to just do this, we need to do that. But even if you look at the Remainers who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019, you know, the get Brexit done was worked because leavers were like, yes, I want it sorted. Yes. The whole bunch of Remainers who were just like, yes, just stop talking about it. I just, I want this chaos to be over and I want you to concert, you know, we voted leave, I think we should leave, let's just get it done. Mm. And if you start, you, you don't necessarily win back the Remain vote if you start saying you're going to start tinkering with it? I think the question is whether by the next election, whether, in you know, the, the economic debate's been dominated by inflation and interest rates yeah. and cost of living. If that debate is sort of quietened down a bit, it will allow basically people to think, well, um, are we better off under Brexit? Could we, be, could we be doing trade rules a little bit better? And that will then become, it'll become more of a potent issue. Yeah. It is weird, actually, Danny. If you look at, you know, the polls overwhelmingly show people think Brexit was the wrong thing to have done. They think it's gone badly. They think it's harmed the economy. Uh, I think even in some polls, people said they would now vote for May. And yet, and you've got the leader of two major parties, three, well, if you count the SNP, Labour, Lib Dems uh, and SNP, all think it was a bad thing to do and they wish we were still in the EU. And no one will say it, with the exception of the, of the SNP, actually. Yeah. The Lib Dems don't want to talk about it. And you've got, like you said, you've ended, you could end up with a Labour Prime and, Minister who thinks think, we should be in the EU, but won't I, say it. The, the problem is that um, I think they correctly judged that rejoining the European Union would threaten the country with, uh, with, would threaten potential voters with a lot of chaos, and they don't want that. It would probably mean having to promise another referendum. I don't know, it would be a very unpopular promise. And anything short of that is... is goes back to the issues we debated forever. Do you join the single market and become a rule taker rather than a rule maker? Uh, is exactly the issue we got into before. And, you know, we talked about slogans. Lots of them were, were meaningless. I came up with, with one for a conference which was called, which was Opportunity for All and would have been fine if it had been linked to a strategy that really meant that, but it wasn't. Uh, but Brexit, <laughs> Bre Brexit um, get Brexit done was a strategy linked to a policy um, you you can argue about whether it got it done on the wrong but he, on the wrong basis and all that, but it was linked to a policy. So and I think it was quite popular. So getting Brexit undone, I don't think is a very good. I don't think that's a very good slogan, and I don't think it's. I think he doesn't need a policy to persuade, you know, Remainers in London to vote Labour because he's got the Tories to do that. That's a good, I suppose that's a good point. And actually sort of raising their hope, the risk of saying you're going to do something is probably greater than just not talking about it and moving on. So on the on the Labour Party slogan then, give Britain its future back. Can I have my ball back, please? It's a bit like that, isn't it? <laughs> but it is a bit, give give it back feels yes. a bit, it's not taking back control. Yes. Give it back. I'm not sure about the passive yeah. voice in the in Well, the somebody actually emailed in and said they thought that giving... What do they say? Uh, giving you your your uh, future back was sort of better because it's sort of give it back sounds like a like you're telling someone off. Yes. Um, rather than uh, yeah, giving okay. you something. I think it's really really hard to come up with something that's broad gauge and meaningful. So give Brexit get Brexit done really sacrificed lots of other policy areas. Right. Yeah. It wasn't saying let's get climate change done or it was mm. let's get Brexit done. Um, so if you used to do something on the future, it's hard. And if you're going to do that, I don't think that's too bad. I mean, I 
truthfully, I don't think anybody's going to pay the slightest bit of attention to it. That's the truth of it. This conversation we have is like going to be the high point. <laughs> um, the, uh, but but so so I don't think you know we need to worry about it too much. But it's not a bad idea that people feel that Britain was on a path and mm. and it's been you know that's been denied to them. I can see why it appeals to a certain yeah. type of feeling. Actually, I'm not sure that it's a feeling that's shared by all Labour voters. So it is quite a Remainer slogan, mm. right? It is aimed at people who say that my it, son oh, and daughter wanted to work, wanted oh, exactly. to have European it's a passport. Of, it's a bit Erasmus. So it is yeah. a bit, it is, I would say it's quite a Remainer-orientated slogan when he wants to build a broader voting base. That's a good point, that. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it does mean something. I mean, people, yeah, exactly. People always want to talk about the future and be the future. And I guess, yeah, he's offering an alternative future. I mean, what I think one of the most memorable um, party election broadcasts for me was a Pete Postlethwaite in the taxi cab in 1997. And it was an alternative future where the Conservatives had stayed in power and, you know... And, and it was so powerful because it was basically, you know, you didn't get out, you didn't vote Labour, and basically this, the future is gone. And I think he's trying to kind of evoke that in this slogan, yeah, yeah. but maybe something sharper for the election. because It's a, bit, it's a tiny bit long. It is but long. They, I suppose they are, they, are, uh, they are getting there. And the problem with these slogans, and I don't know, you must have, when you were trying to come up with these, you need to come up with something which, A, means something, hasn't been used before normally by the Nazis... <laughs> You know, there's all there's always oh, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. Then I'll have a quick go. Oh, it seems to have been used by the Nazis or some far right, you know, party somewhere because they've all been through exactly the same problem. So you just end up with a sort of inoffensive word salad. So on yeah. that basis, the fact that this means something, it mm. does. But it but it's but it's quite niche in its appeal. I think actually, the more I think about it, so I'm a bit surprised they've chosen it. It's definitely an emotion. It might have come out of a focus group, but it's an emotion that. Um, you know, I strongly suspect it has actually a bit like um, we're all in it together, mm. right? Uh, which was a really good slogan, mm. by the way, um, and a really good. But it came out of a focus group. But I, but I think it's a focus group of a particular type of person that that thinks that we they've been robbed of the future by what the Tories have done. I mean, obviously, it's it's ridiculous because we all there's going to be a, there'll be a future because we're going to wake up tomorrow and it'll tomorrow, <laughs> you know tomorrow will be the future. But so. But I, I, but it's so it's implying a certain type of future that we were expecting. And what does that really mean, other than mm. we left the European Union? Isn't it also slightly misleading because Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, Wes Streeting have all said they're not going to be able to make, yeah, wave yeah, a magic yeah, yeah. wand on day one, and suddenly you know hospitals will have loads of beds available and they'll be able to turn around schools and everything else. So it is slightly misleading that you know they maybe they need to be a bit more honest, but nobody really wants. Yeah, they're, you know, they're not actually salty porridge. Give, they don't want to give. They're not actually promised to give you anything. Yes, I was just looking back at some previous ones. David Cameron had ready for change. I think that was before, that was quite good. which is quite good because it's, it's a, you know it's just a bit dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, in dinosaurs. Uh And then in government, they had in one part of the country they had security, stability, opportunity. That's just a, a word salad of on a, mm. on a whiteboard, and everyone's like, fine, we'll just do that one. Uh, can either of you remember what was behind Theresa May when it fell off the wall? Opportunity. Was no, one of the... no, the one you the... said it before. No, that was a different. That was, was a different cheating, one. and I still failed. <laughs> that, that was a di- <laughs> <laughs> that was a different one. We just had oh. opportunity. Can you remember the letters that fell off? Oh no! I was there something for all? No. I mean, it's a sort of right area. Yeah. Building a country that works for everyone. Oh yeah. Because a big announcement was going to be on housing. And uh, no one remembered. So no. it's interesting that because I, you know, did for all the Conservatives are often trying to put that for all yeah. 
element in it. Um, now, unfortunately, it's not necessarily linked to the, to the correct strategy. But the interesting thing about those words is it's trying to counter your impression, your right? So it's saying yeah, something yeah. negative, saying something different. And I'm not sure that Labour's um, slogan did that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I... I I, you know, so I, I wonder about that slogan, actually, the more I think about it. Now, Jane, you, you know, never mind leaving it all to the politicians. Sometimes you have to take back control yourself. And you've saved a tree. Yeah, this is kind of by accident. So <laughs> every, every early morning I take a walk around my neighbourhood to get, you know, get, the, get the body going. And I normally do a route. And last Thursday, for some reason, I went on a completely different route yeah. up a local road near mine. Dog Kennel Hill, it's a very busy road in East Dulwich. Um, and I noticed there's a beautiful row of London plane trees. And one of the trees had this sign on it that said, this tree is dead and it will be felled, you know, 19th of September next Tuesday. And I looked at it and I just thought it's, it was sun was shining, blue sky, beautiful green leaves, really healthy tree. I mean, I'm not a ex complete expert, but I do take an interest in trees. And it looked healthy. So I took photos and I tweeted at Southwark Council, are you sure this tree is really dead? And then I emailed the council, I was emailing opposition, I emailed the Wood Woodland Trust, I, I put it on my local, my allotment uh, WhatsApp group, just to sort of, you know, is this tree really dead or is it, you know, what's, what's the problem? And the council kind of gave me a reply on Twitter saying, well, it isn't dead, we're sorry about that, but it is disease, so it will still have to be felled. And I kind of gave up over the weekend, I thought, well, you know, 48 hours left. And then yesterday, some of my allotment had emailed someone else at the council and they'd got a reply to say, it's not going to be felled on Tuesday, stay of execution. And um, oh, there's a little bit of disease that they have to remove in the branches. Which but it's we, basically... we understand. Because, so uh, producer Lewis, who works on the show, uh, lives behind the tree. Amazing. Uh, and so in a statement, uh, producer Lewis said, honestly, so many people would see me naked the whole time if it wasn't for that tree. Jane has performed a very important community service here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, there ha but then there was a slight panic this morning because there's been, um, uh, Lewis has been sent exclusive footage of uh, the uh, some people with a chainsaw. Yeah, tree fellas. But tree fellas. But they're just tidying it up. They're, they're tidying. They're, 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 I think they're removing some of the the, the branches that look, look like disease. they could be diseased to so make it safe. Danny. Have you ever done anything this useful? <laughs> no. Uh, Jim, this is one of those moments where I was hoping you'd forget that I was actually in the studio. I, I really genuinely have absolutely nothing of value to add to a discussion a big, about society, plane trees. Yes. I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I mean, I think, I think if drawing broader, it is pretty interesting that it got sort of condemned without anybody taking a very careful yeah. look at it. And it probably does suggest... Where, where, where you've done something very good is most of us would look at that, even if we knew something about trees and think, I bet they knew something that I didn't know, and you'd leave the tree. And what was impressive is that you thought, no, actually, I know better than the person who's put this sign up, and I'm going to question it. And it does suggest yeah. that we had that. It's a bit like that second opinion law that the Times has been running stories on. Um, that's what you've done for the tree, really. Yeah, and it's and it actually. I mean, I was really surprised because often with the even with the council, you don't really expect anything to change. You yeah, don't yeah. expect so. It's sort of you know a result that I didn't expect. But actually, just you know, it's it's true what Danny is suggesting that I think a lot of councils probably just kind of go through the motions yeah, and say, yeah, yeah. oh well, it's you know a bit of disease, so let's just a little just bit of it. challenge, and you've won. Danny Finkelstein and Jane Merrick from the Eye. Of course, you can read Danny in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times or Redbox. 
Up next, it's Migration Around the World. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, we're off around the world today. We might think that everything happening in Britain is unique and uniquely important. So all the attention here is on the number of people crossing the channel to get here in small boats. But where are they coming from? Where have they been? And in a time when rising temperatures, widening inequality and increasing political instability means there'll be even more movement around the world, how are other countries dealing with this problem. So yes, it's time to climb aboard Chorley Airlines uh, once more. Put your seats in the upright position. Pack away your stow, stow your tables away. Put your bags in the roof above you. I really need to go on a refreshing course. Uh, yes, we're off on Chorley Airlines again to head first to the country that many people are coming to the UK from, France. <laughs> Uh, we're heading to France. Charles Berman is in Paris where he says the immigration is a hot potato issue there. The interior minister's gone off to Italy. Macron sent him off short notice to deal with the latest flow of migrants coming into Italy. Try to mend fences with Italy. France and Italy have been loggerheads because France, in Italy's view, is not taking enough of the illegals who are coming in into Lampedusa and the south of Italy. A lot of them are coming over the Alps illegally and France is upset over that and is squabbling with Italy over the immigration. Yeah. So Charles Berman in Paris. Well, let's follow uh, the French uh, interior minister off to Italy. It's back on the plane. Here we and we land in Italy where Giorgia Maloney's welcomed the European Commission president Ursula von der Leyen to the Italian island of Lampedusa where they visited a migrant reception centre. The Italian president uh, said the country is being placed under unsustainable pressure. Here is uh, Giorgia Maloney speaking yesterday. If somebody here in Europe were to think that uh, uh, these global crises that we are tackling and facing could be just uh, solved within the uh, Italian borders, within the, the, Italian, uh, the Italian borders, then it would be a very big and huge uh, mistake on their side because this massive uh, flow of immigrants is something which requires the involvement and the responsibility by everybody to be tackled. Uh, that was a translation of uh, Giorgio Maloney, the Italian Prime Minister. Let's speak to Hannah Roberts, who's a journalist in Rome. Hi, Hannah. Hi, good morning. Give a sense of the scale, the numbers of people arriving in Lampedusa in recent days. Yeah, well, migrants uh, arriving by boat in Italy have doubled this year over the same period of last year, which is quite awkward for Giorgio Maloney, who came to power a year ago, saying that she was going to solve migration. And last week, over 10,000 people arrived just on the tiny, tiny island of Lampedusa, which is right very near Tunisia, about 100 kilometres off the coast, so easier to get to for uh, these small boats. And uh, it created very difficult conditions on the island. People have been fighting over water and shortages of food. Eventually, the government has moved many of them off onto the mainland, but it, as you can imagine, it takes time to get there and, and pick people up. I mean, so, 
So, I mean, Georgia Maloney, like you said, had taken quite a hard line on this, um, uh, but it doesn't seem to be making any difference on on the ground. Well, until now, she's kept pretty quiet. She's been at pains to portray herself as very mainstream uh, since becoming prime minister. She wants to be seen as more of a UK-type Tory, even though her party has very fascist roots and uh, nationalist uh, jargon. But... um, yeah, in, just in the last few days, this crisis has enabled her to take a very hard line. And so she uh, is, has the government yesterday passed measures to increase the detention time for migrants up to 18 months. And uh, the defence ministry has been ordered to build new uh, detention centres to house all these migrants. Her emphasis is saying that everybody who doesn't have the right to asylum must be repatriated. And she's managed to get Ursula von der Leyen, who, as you said, visited Lampedusa on Sunday with her, uh, to warm up to the idea of a European naval mission uh, that would block the boats uh, leaving Libya. So this used to be considered an unthinkable, ultra-hard right idea. The fact that the president of the European Commission says she's going to explore this is, is a huge change. Um, I mean, the, the conversation we're having is so similar to the one that's being played out in the UK uh, can we stop the boats from coming? Can we send them back? What's involved with the Navy in that? Um, uh, is it clear that, that there is a plan that might work? Because, you know, 8,000 8, arriving in three days. I mean, when we're talking about sort of 30,000, 40,000 arriving in a year in the UK, the, 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 the scale is so much uh, greater. Is it about trying to sort out the problems in North Africa? Well, Maloney's been warning that tens of millions of people might come given... The, you know, the new crisis in Africa, the shortage of grain, uh, natural disasters, um, environmental issues. So, I mean, she's trying to stoke fears. Uh, are we, whether we're really going to see these kind of numbers is highly unlikely. Uh, but a European naval mission to uh, stop people leaving Libya and Tunisia would be very questionable. It would certainly be open to legal challenge from... Uh, human rights organisations, I, I think they're already working on it. So whether it's realisable uh, is is doubtful. Well, we'll see uh, how that plans out in uh, Italy. Thank you for that. Uh, Hannah Roberts there, journalist in Rome, updated on the situation in Italy. Right, uh, where do they go then, having arrived into Europe? Let's hop back on the plane. A short two-hour flight to Berlin, where Germany decided to keep taking in migrants and refugees arriving in Italy just two days after it announced the suspension of a voluntary agreement with Rome to receive new arrivals. This is the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. To deal with these challenges, we, are, we also need to deepen our relations with other regions of the world, especially with Asia and Africa, from where I just returned. We need to work with them jointly as partners, and we need to become a more geopolitical European Union. So that was Olaf uh, Scholz speaking there. Uh, let's speak to Elizabeth Findel, a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Berlin. Um, Elizabeth, just take us through some of the, the history of this, because uh, Angela Merkel uh, received you know, great plaudits when she opened up uh, Germany's borders to welcome refugees back in 2015. What impact did that have on Germany and German politics and their attitudes now? Yeah, absolutely. 2015, Germany put out this extremely welcoming message of we can handle the migrants. They're welcome here. Um, Large numbers of people have 
uh, been settling here ever since, particularly from Syria, now many from Afghanistan, from North Africa. And it uh, is this, uh, it, it's this huge, um, huge sea change that never really ended. And so Germany now is uh, certainly the largest destination in Europe for migrants. Uh, it is uh, last year, more than 322,000 migrants requested asylum there, which is second only to the US. And that's about half uh, of the United States asylum requests, even though Germany, of course, has less than 4% the landmass uh, of the states and a quarter of the population. And at this point, it's been eight years, it's been going on long enough that there's a sense within the country that people are starting to get tired of it and feeling like they can't continue to handle settling people. Of course, not everyone feels that way, but there are indications in polls that support for migrants is slipping. Um, and I was going to say that what impact is it having on on politics? Is there a, is there a a point at which? And I remember you know hearing uh, Angela Merkel speaking before about in part because she she grew up with the the Berlin Wall uh, and and that sort of sense of separation and borders. That was why she was so you know felt almost allergic to. To borders, do Germans still feel like that? Do they feel like they can take an unlimited number? Is there a is there a benefit in terms of, um, in you know, employment and the economy and so on? Uh, although actually, the latest economic figures in Germany might suggest otherwise. Um, do people think it is a good thing for Germany to be doing this, or at some point will they say, like other countries, enough is enough? I, I think that's the question. There certainly still is uh, support among many people uh, for taking in refugees, but that is starting to slip. A poll earlier this year by uh, Ipsos found that 48% of Germans now believe the country should stop accepting refugees completely, at least for a while. Uh, that number is up from 32% last year, so pretty significant change over the course of a year. You've seen individual cities push back, saying they're full, they don't have the housing, they don't have resources. But then, of course, you also have had other cities say, we want migrants. Uh, you mentioned the economic component, which is really interesting, because uh, Germans have felt that they need foreign workers uh, to fill a lot of jobs, to um, uh, sort of fix some of the demographic problems. And uh, that has th that has had support and it's up, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, less than a third of Germans thought it was good for the economy to have migrants come. Uh, now it's more like half. But experts have told me there's a bit of a paradox. On one hand, people generally agree that they want and need foreigners to come in and work some jobs. But they consider a certain type of assimilation, especially being fluent in German, more important than other countries. That's difficult. And a lot of people don't see refugees as the answer to the work problem. They complain that migrants don't work, even though the country makes it very, very difficult for those people to work. Uh, in many cases. And I suppose that is a, that's an important distinction you're making there. There's a difference between economic migrants who might go to Germany because they can speak German and they want to work, uh, people, uh, refugees that Germany might take directly from, uh, for instance, uh, Syria, and people who arrive into Europe 
illegally on small boats, travelling from North Africa and then spread out across Europe and then find themselves in Germany, possibly having got there uh, uh, illegally. And what you do about them, and those, I suppose, are... It is possible for, for the, the electorates to, to think that economic migrants are a good thing while also questioning... Um, a, a flow of illegal migration. Really interesting. That thank you for that. That's Elizabeth Findel, uh, a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Berlin. So we've toured Europe, but we leave uh, Germany behind us now. It's back on the plane for two and a half hours. I'm not sure this is the most direct route we've taken from London to Rome to Berlin. Uh, now we land in uh, Tunis, and uh, Elizia Volkman is a journalist covering North Africa. And migration based in Tunisia. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good to have you with us. So, uh, a lot of the focus of why, we, from the sort of British perspective, people are arriving into Europe, but they're coming from North Africa. What is what's driving it? What's what 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 you know? What are the forces which mean that people take huge risks of their lives to leave North Africa to try to reach Europe? Well, North Africa is a departure point. So there's a, a mixture of migration of Tunisians, which has actually been going down. It's down by about 20%. But what's been uh, rising and at times surging has been migration of people from sub-Saharan countries. And there's a lot of different reasons. There's uh, some very strong push factors because of what's been happening in Africa. We've seen major coup d'etats and, and political violence rising rising up in places like Mali, Burkina Faso, and recently Niger. So they're, they're very unstable. But also countries that people perceive as being stable, like Côte d'Ivoire, uh, there's a lot of more sort of covert political violence. You know, if you're not with the kind of the leading ruling party, then severe black pressures can be applied to you. So people look at places like Mali and Sudan and see this very overt, explosive violence. And you can understand in Sudan where there's a war, why people need to leave. But there's also other pressures that are more hidden and less well reported. And also a big factor is climate change, you know, mm -hmm. particularly in places like northern Nigeria. The the land is you know, is practically being burnt. There's no place for farmers to graze their cattle. It's very difficult to grow co crops. And we're also seeing that in Tunisia, normally you know, in September you have a glut of tomatoes. Now there's hardly any at all. So those climatic pressures and there's just a simple you know, lack of availability of things to eat are making people think, well, maybe I'm going to try my luck elsewhere. Something that's not well understood. Yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say it's really interesting that, that when we when we talk about um, you know the impact of climate change, you know, people think, well, you know, you understand why you'd move if it was incredibly hot and you know unbearably hot. But actually, the impact on suddenly crops for you know you don't need very much uh, change in the in the weather, in the temperature, in the climate to you know if crops fail, then suddenly you don't have a business, you don't have anything to eat, you don't have any money, and so you go in search of somewhere else where you might be able to get work. So initially they migrate uh, to cooler areas of their own country. Uh, we've seen in Nigeria conflicts rising because of this. And there comes a point where it's it's unbearable. And also the impact where you have um, violent armed groups moving into an area, it might be actually the cooler area where the people come under pressure, where there's more violence and where you have instances like Boko Haram. One thing that's not well understood is actually how many people die in the desert en route, you know, crossing through Mali and Niger. Uh, that's uh, the, the death toll there is incredibly high. And then there's also the other thing that's driving it are the traffickers. This is a multi-million 
dollar business. It is good business smuggling people across the Sahara up to Tunis through Libya. And also in Libya, you have this really infernal system of kidnap and ransom. As soon as people come into contact with traffickers, they can find themselves sort of arrested, inverted commas, uh, and they find themselves held in these really disgusting so-called prisons um, where the, the jailers are ringing up their family and pressuring them for money. So there, there's generally a lot of money to be made out of sub-Saharan people on the move. If they do manage to make it across the sea, it's an incredibly dangerous crossing. Um, we've seen, particularly in Tunisia, a rise of these sort of homemade metal boats that the traffickers are using. They're not single use, they're being repeatedly used. And of course, salt water and steel is yeah. not a good mixture. I, I've spoken to people who have literally watched boats break apart and lose hope, and, and thankfully they, they were saved. So the the pressures are are huge, and the, you know for for people who want to try and make a life for themselves and find a you know a better future, Europe seems very attractive. But also there's another disconnect because a lot of the the migrants that I've met and also refugees are professional people. They're, they're this image of migrants because they look down at heel that the image is that they must be uneducated, and that's actually yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. true. People. Are highly skilled you have car mechanics you have nurses people who are qualified degree nurse practitioners but there's no way for them to uh, convert their degree courses or their experience when they get to europe and there's actually a need for professionals yeah. and skilled people so that is not being connected up yeah, yeah, at yeah. all. Lot, there's a lot of dots to join there. Um, exactly. Elizabeth, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, because we're going to try and get around the world in the next uh, few minutes. Uh, Elizabeth Voltman is a journalist in uh, based in Tunisia, covering North Africa and migration. We're back on the plane now. So now we land in the United States. So let's get the picture there when it comes to uh, migration, illegal migration. Uh, Caitlin Dornbos joins me. Um, Caitlin, if we think that British politics can be obsessed with this issue, I mean, it dominates a lot of the political conversation in America too. It certainly does. It's one of the highest issues that are facing certainly the Republicans in the Republican nomination for the presidential election next year. And is that because... Uh, it the problem is getting worse, or is it because politicians, Donald Trump in particular, has sort of put rocket boosters on it, put it up in lights and other mixed metaphors about raising the salience of it as being an issue? It is really a multi-pronged approach. There is certainly securitization of that that topic, of, of the threats that immigration faces the United States. But what's going on is that we have a crisis at our border. Under Donald Trump, um, he had issued so many regulations and been so outspoken about not being welcoming to immigrants, especially those from um, South America and Mexico, um, that immigration numbers dropped for for his years were, were relatively low. I'm looking at 2020 right now. Uh, 646,000 uh, immigrants came across the southern border. This year, it's been at 2.5 uh, million. It's just since. And is that, and is that legal since, or illegal? Uh, that is illegal crossings. Wow. So when we hear about. 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people arriving by spot. I mean, obviously America is a lot bigger, but in terms of the, the numbers, 
is a lot higher. So is it is it right to say that actually Donald Trump's approach worked? It was very unpopular with the you know Democrats and the liberal left in America. But in terms of stopping people entering the U- the the US illegally, it worked. You know, what's funny is it's you have to separate the dialogue from the actual policies. So Donald Trump put in place a number of anti-immigration policies, including one called Title 42, in which the coronavirus was used as a way to turn back immigrants, illegal immigrants who crossed into the country. Joe Biden kept that in place and was in favor of keeping that in place as long as he could and didn't change a lot of those immigration policies early on in his presidency, and yet the numbers continued to climb. So, you know, we were looking at that 646,000 in 2020. By 2021, it was nearly 2 million. And all of that is basically, there was no change to the policy themselves, but it was a difference in rhetoric. So suddenly we had Biden in power, and Biden is all about creating legal pathways for immigration. And there is this um, idea out there that, oh, the United States is more welcoming to immigrants now. Whether it's based in policy or not is questionable. It's really interesting that. And I suppose when it comes to Rishi Sunak's got stopped the boats, obviously Donald Trump had built the wall. Did he build yeah. the wall? Uh, and is it still there? Um, there... There's parts of the wall up. There's also lots of building material for the wall that cannot be touched anymore, just lying there. But largely, I mean, the borders remain mostly open. I actually had the chance to go down to Brownsville, Texas, which is right on the U.S.-Mexico border in southeast Texas. And it was stunning because I could see from across the Rio Grande, um, that's, that's the river border between the U.S. and Mexico, I could see the immigrants across the way readying for their trip to cross this very dangerous river to come across onto land. And if they could come onto land, there was some barbed wire, but they were laying their blankets over the barbed wire and able to get over that barbed wire pretty pretty easily. And it's just a matter of whether or not there are border guards there to stop them. Um, so, you know, those numbers that I was listing off earlier, those are the ones, those are the numbers of illegal immigrants that have been encountered by Border Patrol. If you can actually get across and not be encountered by Border Patrol because so much of it is it has is open, um, you're just in the United States. That was Kathleen Dornbos uh, from the New York Post. Give us the, the, uh, the picture in America. Right, back on the plane one last time. Quite a long way, going around the back, I think, on this one. Uh, Heading from America to Australia. Right, here in Britain, we hear a lot about an Australian-style points-based system and the offshore immigration system. It's part of the inspiration for the Rwanda policy and where the Stop the Boats slogan originated. In fact, here is the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, making that pledge a decade ago. And I am never, ever going to apologise for stopping the boats. Our system is too soft. Our system is too soft. And we are in the business of toughening it up. So let's speak to Samantha Maiden, political editor for news.com.au. Samantha, what is the Australian Stop the Boats policy and did it work? It did work for a while. um, And it was actually first introduced by, I suppose, one of Tony Abbott's political mentors, John Howard, in 2001. So over 20 years ago, Australia first introduced offshore processing in Nauru and PNG under what became known as the Pacific Solution. It all started when 
a boat arrived. Uh, it was actually intercepted by a Norwegian container ship at the MV Tampa that rescued hundreds of asylum seekers that were stranded on an Indonesian fishing boat. They tried to take them to Indonesia. The asylum seekers didn't want to go, and then they wanted to take them to Christmas Island, which is an island off the Australian coast. The first thing that the Conservative government started doing was basically excising parts of Australian islands. So they started carving them out of the immigration zone and basically saying if you turned up there, uh, you wouldn't be admitted. And this all occurred under the, against the backdrop of September 11. And so uh, there was a very kind of nasty debate that started playing into it about whether there were terrorists on these boats. And ultimately they introduced... Um, detention well detention was already in place but they introduced offshore um detention and they used the slogan that, that predated stop the boats which is we will decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come that was what how the, the message that john yeah. howard took to the 2001 election i mean fundamentally one of the biggest uh, differences between uh, britain and uh, australia is the the distance that they're coming from france to, to britain is just so much shorter yeah, the distance isn't the only thing. I mean, uh, you know, obviously do a scale, but the number of asylum seekers coming was, you know, there was a great deal of moral panic about it at the time, but I don't think there was any comparison between the number of asylum seekers coming to Australia compared to this number of asylum seekers that are in Europe uh, and that are trying to get into Britain. Um, there's always those issues, though, that, you know, plenty of them are flying flying in by plane as well, and there seems to be this particular obsession um, with boats. I mean, this has been an issue that's really ripped apart the Labor Party in Australia for decades. They tried to dismantle offshore processing in 2008. And then as boat arrivals started to track up again, which obviously the coalition, the Conservatives would argue would be because they dismantled that, that, that the asylum seekers started mm -hmm. coming back. Uh, basically, they reintroduced it in 2013. And, and then, um, sorry, they reintroduced it in 2008. And 2012, they, they reintroduced it. And basically, uh, they went through a similar situation to what Britain has been going through in that they wanted to send people to Malaysia. The High Court said no. Then they had to send them back to Nauru. But, you know, it, it has been about, at the time, a deterrent and finding somewhere that was just so yeah. you know, horrific, basically, people getting Manus Island and they, they sent the women and children to Nauru and they sent the men to Manus, and, and some of them didn't survive it. I mean, some of them were bashed to death in riots, suicided, people set fire to themselves. Wow. You know, it was a very grim policy. Yeah, and I well, wowzers. Uh, Samantha, really good to speak to you. Samantha Maiden there, politicalist for news.com.au. Uh, rounding off our tour of the world. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And get in touch. You can email me, Matt, at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.